and it has been absolutely incredible. So, uh, we are now headed to the sermon, and you can all pray for me a whole lot for a whole lot of reasons, which I'll explain here in one moment. But, what the heck is that? That is, oh, it's a quacking phone. That's a great ringtone. All right, all right, now, I think I got myself together here. All right. We're going to do something very interesting for Christmas today, okay? Watch this. In, in 2004, a guy named Sam Harris, I'm clicking, but I'm not getting a response. Sam Harris wrote a book, The End of Faith, okay? Now, this book was a really important book, and the reason why, New York Times bestseller, this was a very important book, and the reason why was because what he's arguing for is religion, terror, and the future of, of reason. What he did was, is coming out of 9-11... Sam took this idea that believing that there is a God is not just a myth, but it's dangerous for people to believe. It's literally dangerous to the world that they should believe. And coming out of 9-11, we all get the point, right? But the bottom line is he opened it up to Christianity too in a very strong way, and it opened the floodgates so that a guy named Richard Dawkins then went and did a PBS special. I'm still not clicking, so if you could help me with that. And I got a lot of slides, so I'd like to not have to. Okay, but click for me, please. Richard Dawkins did a PBS series and then The God Delusion. And The God Delusion, you can see how the titles are getting more sort of strident, right? You'll see how they keep going. And the point is, is in The God Delusion, he's making the argument here that it is not just a harmless delusion. It is a hurtful deception to believe that there's a God. Now, the guy who popularized this probably the very most, by the way, these guys start to become what's known as the new atheists. And what they mean by that is, is that the stridency of their attack against religion, this idea that it's dangerous, that's what was new. And so they're picking this up stronger and stronger until we get to 2008. Click, please. And what we've got is a guy named Christopher Hitchens, who the political junkies in the room will know who this guy is, because you see him, you saw him all over the talk shows, Okay. And Christopher Hitchin wrote a book, Click, that is, Click, that is, God is not great, how religion poisons everything. You see how the stridency, even in the titles? I mean, this is, Hitchens is always famous for being a bomb thrower in terms of the way that he would talk. But you can see, I mean, this is taking it a long ways, right? And so, and, and in here, he's making the point that this religion poisons, by the way, he's not saying as a Christian might. Religion, you know, can ruin the true worship of God. No, he's making the blatant argument that believing in God poisons you. It's bad for you. It's harmful to the world. That's the point that he's making. Now, I do need to note something, and I need to note this because something happened between the time that I was using Christopher, Christopher Hitchens for this sermon and now, and that is that he died on Thursday. And he died of esophageal cancer, which he was diagnosed with approximately two years later. And I want to make something clear just so that it would never be misunderstood. I do not equate his book with him getting cancer. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite of that, or not quite the opposite, but here's what my heart is. Uh, I, when, I, when Christopher wrote the book, I started praying for him. And I have fairly regularly prayed for him. When I heard he got cancer, I prayed for him all the more. And that's my heart. And I think that that's all of our hearts. And I pray that I meet him in heaven as he's with God. I, I hope that that is the case. You don't ever know what has happened in the last moments of a person's life. It doesn't matter the rest of it. It matters that one decision at that critical moment about who Christ is. Okay? So bottom line, that's my heart with him. But I just need to note that because some of you already know that. 
But having said that, what we're doing today is, is let's go ahead and say, let's, 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 let's argue the point with them. We're not, not argue with them. Let's, let's just look at the question. The question that they're posing is, is, is believing in God dangerous? Now, I think in order to address that question properly, we have to actually narrow the question a little bit for a very important reason. We have to narrow it to, is believing in Jesus dangerous? And the reason we have to do that is because these guys and other people that critique God will do this funny thing with God. That is, they will call the God of the Old Testament by taking out certain phrases and so on, not looking at it as a whole. They will take out certain pieces and parts, and what they will do is they will say, the God of the Old Testament is angry, vengeful, mean, not a nice person. The God of the New Testament, all lovey-dovey Jesus, tolerant. And in both cases, they completely misunderstand who God is as revealed. We have been looking at this church at the book of Revelation. And in Revelation, it's pretty clear that God is holy, and that's important. <laughs> but that he is also massively loving in every degree. That same spirit is to be found in the Old Testament and the New. As God says to the writer of Hebrew, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay, there is no change in me. I'm just, you guys are, but, but now watch. See, you can make God out to be anybody you want until Jesus enters the picture. Because Jesus is the revelation of God, because Jesus is God. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, you can no longer say, this is what God is like by picking and choosing what verses you want to use. You have to say this, God is like this because Jesus is God and he's revealing to us who God is. <laughs> so this is actually what God is like. And just note something here. It's easy to caricature God in a way that even Christians would not like. But it's a lot harder to do that with Jesus. See that? There's something about Jesus that limits our understanding of who God is into the realms of truth, which is holiness, righteousness, love, mercy, forgiveness, all kinds of things. So having said that, and because after all it is Christmas, and if we're not going to talk about Jesus on Christmas, I mean, we talk about Jesus every day of every week, but bottom line is, you know, it's Christmas. So what we're going to be asking is, what they say is, God, oh, thank you guys, God is dangerous. Okay, that's what they're saying. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to narrow that question down just a little bit to this. Would the world really be better off if Jesus had never been born? There's an appropriate Christmas question, right? Would it really be better off? So having said that, who's our prayer again? Oh, Greg Thatcher, that is awesome. On the worship steering team, uh, has preached here, awesome guy. So lift up the sermon, lift up another church, Greg, would you? Thanks. Do I have a clock back there? Father, thank you for this place. God, this morning I pray that it would be a port of grace for each of us. Lord, how the nations rage, and it just, it, it proves one more time, Lord, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but the powers and the strongholds, Lord, they're in the spiritual realm. And in the name of Jesus, because of your blood, God, we pray that we would have open ears and open hearts, and that we would spread that this morning. Bless Kurt, bless the words of his mouth. God, those things that are on his mind and heart to share with us, bring clarity in the name of Jesus, and for he and Julie, the blood of Jesus applied to their family at this holiday time. Amen. And for all of us, God. 
And Lord, for my friend Lewis down in uh, River of Life, down in Tulare, California, that bilingual church, Lord, that is sharing Jesus, would you bless them this morning? Amen. Lord, would you uh, shower them as they, as they reach two communities and maybe even more? And God, may it be said of us that we are reaching and reaching out to our community. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing in order to understand what we're going to do today, because the fact of the matter is with that question right there, we could actually spend almost a year in sermons about this. There's so many things that we could talk about, but I won't do that to you, okay? But I do want you to note something. There's many dimensions to Christ, right? There is the dimension in which he is a real human person who walked on the earth 2,000 years ago. And just that fact alone, not his death and resurrection, not his being God and so on, just the fact that he was a real person has enormous effect on the rest of mankind throughout history. Just that one fact. And that's primarily where we're going to stay because that's the place that we can stay most profitably if we're engaging this idea. But do understand, we could easily go to much deeper places of his death and resurrection, which bottom line, you've got to understand something. Remember this, we've done many sermons on it. The death and the resurrection of Jesus is not supposition. It's not myth. It is as provable as any fact in all of human history. It, it, it's, it's right at the top. If you take modern techniques of verifying the truth of something that was recorded as historical, and we're, we're being skeptical, and we're saying, did it really happen? And so you take modern, critical techniques to understand it. You can use those techniques, and you come up with that the resurrection is as provable as anything that ever happened in history. That's the truth. So that makes it kind of a big difference. There really is life after death, right? And then there's a whole other claim that we make, which is that Jesus is actually God. Now, again, given that they don't believe in God... That's not, we're not going to touch a lot there, but we could sure spend a lot of time there and see the real impact that that has had, the demonstrable things that that has led to. But having done that, let me just, let me just start us here, okay? I want, you to, I want you to think. What we did last week is we said that Jesus, we said three things, but the first one was we said Jesus is holy. Now, properly defined, here's what holy means. He didn't sin. Properly defined sin means this. God has created a beautiful, perfect, wonderful, incredible life for you. And then he gave you free will. And you could either walk in it, or you could walk another direction on your own. And whenever you walk on your own, that's sin. See, we think of sin as being, I hurt somebody. Sin, properly defined, is a very narrow thing, actually. And that is not walking in the way that God has laid out for you to walk not going to Dallas, Texas for the Morses. See what I mean? That would be a sin. Now, nobody who would here would think that would be a sin. That's not how we define sin, but that is, according to God, I have this way, and you've chosen to go your own way, fine, but that's sin. That's not me. But now Jesus comes along and does something here. The Pharisees are challenging him, and what they're saying is, is you know, you're this, and you're not this, and da, 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 and everything else. And finally, Jesus says this back to them. He says, which of you can truthfully accuse me of sin? And then he goes on to say, so if I didn't sin, why don't you believe me? Because you, you all know there isn't anybody that's done what I've done so far, which is never sin. No other religious figure ever, before or since, can say this. Nobody ever can say this. And Jesus says, which of you can truthfully accuse me of sin? Now, when he says that, he is not using this narrow definition, this technical definition. 
He's saying this. Here's his challenge. Tell me anybody that I've wronged. Tell me anything I've done wrong. Tell me anything that you could say I've sinned in any fashion. Now, the closest that he came was when he threw the money changers out of the temple. Remember that? Because he was driving them out of the money. So that was the closest he ever came to it. Do you understand who the money changers were? These were guys that were doing this racket. And it really was a racket. It was thievery. What was happening was poor people from all over the land of Israel would come to Israel. And you, you wouldn't bring your lamb that you were going to sacrifice. You would bring money. And it was Roman coinage. And they set a rule in the temple. Not a biblical rule, a religious one. They set a rule in the temple that said, if you, don't, you can't buy the sacrifice with Roman money because that would be bad. So you have to convert your money into temple money, which we're going to set the rate at. <laughs> and they would just rip you off. And then you go buy your, and so everybody hated him. The religious leaders hated him. The people hated Everybody hated the money changers. So Jesus driving them out was everybody going, good job. We're not going to hold that one against you. That was good. It's not that the ends justify the means. You did a good thing. You drove evil people out of a holy place. You, you, they've been corrupting the truth the religion, the, the, the understanding of God, and you did a good job. You, you do realize that there was other people that were with Jesus, and they did things like this, which, by the way, he shouldn't have done, because it says in the Bible, if you declare someone raka, you're in danger of eternal judgment. And John the Baptist goes to the religious leaders who are coming up. John's a pretty good guy, right? And John the Baptist says, these religious leaders are coming, and he says, you brood of vipers, who told you to come here? <laughs> right? I challenge you to do something. Go look at every single thing that Jesus ever said to a religious leader. He didn't say things mushy, mushy, tolerant, tolerant. He was very clear, but he was also very respectful. He was very careful about what he said. Just look it up sometime. Very respectful. In fact, do you remember something? When the soldiers came to arrest Jesus... Peter, thinking, this is it, the war's coming, we're gonna, my side's going to deliver us, he chops off one of the soldier's ears. Jesus rebukes him, literally rebukes him, picks up the guy's ear and heals him. That's what Jesus does. And yet Jesus knew that these guys were coming to kill him. For what? What was he doing wrong? What can you accuse me of? What have I done? Nothing. You're deceived. You're evil. You're your father the devil, he says. This is why you don't get it. This is why God himself, the one that you think you're worshiping, can be right in front of you and you don't get who it is. Because you're terribly deceived. Tragically deceived. But Jesus never rails against that injustice. Against that injustice. Do you see it? This is the character. This is the nature of Christ. I just want to, I want you to watch this. We're going to do a little bit of this today. We don't usually do this kind of thing, but Gandhi says this, the example of Jesus' suffering is a major factor in the composition of my undying faith in nonviolence. What then does Jesus mean to me? To me, he was one of the greatest teachers humanity has ever had. Let me do another one from him. Jesus occupies in my heart the place of one of the greatest teachers who have a considerable influence on my life. I shall say to the Hindus that your life will be incomplete unless you reverentially study the teachings of Jesus. In fact, let me go all the way. This is Mr. Nonviolent. This is a thing that the new atheist would lift up as an important thing. You do realize 
that Gandhi is the guy who stopped millions of people from being killed, British and Indian. There was a certain war coming, a break from the colonial power, and literally millions of people would have likely died in the battle. And Gandhi, insisting upon nonviolence, stops millions of people from being, having their blood shed. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems like a fairly good thing. And Gandhi says this, I refuse to believe that there exists or has ever existed a person that has not made use of Jesus' example. Even though that person may have done so without realizing it, the lives of every person have, in some greater or lesser degree, been changed by his presence in the world, his actions, and the words spoken by him. He doesn't believe that Jesus is God. He doesn't believe that. But this is what he's saying about him. This man changed the world for the better. In our own country, you know, Martin Luther King's coming up, right? Martin Luther King was another guy who, a minister of Jesus Christ, found a way to resist what the world had never seen before and spared what kind of division, what kind of heartache, what kind of bloodshed by being nonviolent in the civil rights movement? You do know all the guys that didn't want him to do that, right? But he stuck to it and God honored it. And it changed the face of this country in a good way. Dangerous? <laughs> really? The world's better off without having him there? Something about the example of his life and the way that he lived it was extraordinary. In fact, what we did last week is, is that we looked at that he wasn't only holy, but he was also the fullness of the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit, which is to say this. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Jesus manifested every single one of those. And you tell me, anybody of the new atheists or anybody else, who wouldn't say that every single one of those was a desirable trait for every single person on the face of the earth to have? Right? Only Nietzsche or somebody like that who's going right to the bald-faced use of power or Ayn Rand for, you know, Atlas Shrugged or something like that would even dare to say that there was something in that list that wasn't good. Most people looking at it would say, the world is a better place if people are like that. It's a good thing that people are like that. So watch this. Let's just take one of them, self-control. Carefully stated here. Some of you know my testimony, so I, I don't want to because there's... Anyway. I was, I'm a person who's had a long-standing issue with self-control. Okay? That's, this is the... This is the one that's killing me slowly. The fact is I was involved in things when I was younger that could have killed me quickly and I had more than a few friends die from it. That's the truth. Sorry. And I'm here today because on one day, Jesus Christ baptized me in the Holy Spirit. And on the day that he did that, there was a whole lot of things in my life that I was having no victory over, even as a Christian. And they just went away. Now, not everything went away. There's other things I still struggle with. But I'm telling you, I got a kind of self-control in that moment that was extraordinary compared to what I'd ever experienced. 
And I think it's particularly poignant right now for us to take a look at a video of Christopher Hitchens talking about his own struggle with self-control. The drugs that he did, the alcohol that he drank, the copious amounts of alcohol that he drank, the smoking that he did that eventually did do him in. I want you to hear him and I want you to listen to what he has to say and I want you to listen to what he's saying. Even about, there's one little thing that's kind of hard to hear because there's a little music over it. This is a CNN interview and they're asking him questions. He's about to die. He'll look very different than the other picture because he's now undergoing chemotherapy. This was done in January, this interview. And he's talking about this lifelong drug, alcohol, smoking that he was doing. And, and just listen to the words that he says. So to answer your question, of course. So to answer your question, of course. I always knew that there's a risk in the bohemian lifestyle. And I decided to take it because whether it's an illusion or not, I don't think it is. Um, it helped my concentration. It stopped me being bored. It stopped other people being bored to some extent. It would keep me awake. It would make me want the evening to go on longer, to prolong the conversation, to enhance the moment. If I was asked, would I do it again? Um, the answer is probably yes. I'd have quit earlier, possibly, hoping to get away with the whole thing. Easy for me to say, of course. Not very nice to my children, do you? That sounds irresponsible. If I say, yeah, I'd do all that again to you. But the truth is, it would be hypocritical of me to say, no, I'd, I'd never touch the stuff if I'd known. Because I did know. Everyone knows. And I decided all of life is a wager. I'm going to wager on this bit. And I, I can't make it come out any other way. Um, it's strange, I almost don't even regret it. No, I should. Because it's just impossible for me to picture life without wine and other things fueling the company. It's just impossible for me to imagine life without these drugs that I was doing, even though he said how hard it had been on his kids. I think actually the most telling little moment in that for me, though, is actually when he says, boredom. Can I tell you, I understand that perfectly. Before I knew Jesus Christ, I was so bored. Just because of who I am and just because of my, the intellect and the way that it works and so on, I can tell you, I totally understood that boredom and anything I did to sort of stimulate and all that kind of stuff, that was all gain for me. But then I became a Christian. <laughs> And my life got so stinking interesting that I couldn't do anything but just hold on, baby. <laughs> Katie, bar the door, hold on to your hat. I mean, everything just became the most fascinating, exciting, exhilarating, fan unbelievable, magnificent, hard, difficult, ridiculous, incredible, glorious, yucky, fantastic. You know what I mean? I mean, my life just went into technicolor. You know what I mean? You know that, that movie that came out the one time, you know, when the kids were in black and white and then they discovered sex and it became Technicolor. Mine was exactly the other way around. My life was in black and white and then I found God and it went 3D, full on, avatar, better, technical, wow. Right? I mean, that's what happened in my life. And I so wish that, I understand why Christopher didn't know that. Why? Because he didn't know God. And you can't have this kind of unbelievable journey unless you know Jesus. That's just the way it is. Sorry. You know what I mean? That's just the way it is. He's the one that is the author of life with a capital L. And when you get that capital L inside of you, wow, hold on to your hat.
Because it may take you to Dallas, Texas, or it may take you to Africa, or it may take you right in the heart of Bellevue, pouring out the whole of your life at every single moment, because, man, it's worth it. Now, that's the truth. As opposed to, these, you see how limited, I mean, he's writing a book that everybody's thinking is important, and for people that don't know, it sounds important. But for people to do it just sounds, excuse me, but stupid. Ignorant is the right, proper word, right? They just don't know. I'm looking at notes, and you're going to find out why in just a second. Uh, I just don't want to miss anything. So I just want to say something in terms of self-control. Dangerous? No. <laughs> dangerous to me, like we talked about last week. But dangerous to the world? No, because the things that I've been doing that have been so much and so incredible is making a difference in people's lives. I've been able to help a whole lot of people that were struggling with things that I've struggled with. I've been able to do all kinds of things that made a, a magnificent difference in a whole lot of people's lives and praise God for it. It's not dangerous. It's wonderful. Let's just take another one. Let's just go to gentleness here. Gentleness. That also would not be something that I was good at. <laughs> you know who else wasn't good at it? John the, the Apostle. John the Apostle was called Son of Thunder. You know why? Because he was walking with Jesus one day. This is only one example of it, by the way. He was called, he was, him and his brother were sons of thunder, right? And he was walking with Jesus one day, and these people didn't receive him. And he said, let's call down fire and burn them up. <laughs> Sounds like a good son of thunder, right? That's just the kind of guy that he is. And in just three years, this son of thunder becomes the author that uses the word love more than any other writer by a huge margin. And he doesn't just use the word love. You remember three Greek words? One is eros. There's several Greek words for love, but three primary ones. Eros, at least now there's three primary. There's only two primary then. Eros, which is erotic, which is to say, I love that because of what it does for me. Eros is all about me. Philos, which is about, it's an exchange. There's a mutual love. We call Philadelphia the city of brotherly love because it's where people love each other and that's beneficial to all. But then there was this obscure word, and the reason why it was obscure was because people didn't use it. And the reason why people didn't use it is because it didn't happen. And this word was agape, and what it meant was a completely selfless act of love. Not just selfless, but even to the point, this is where John gets it from, that Jesus would die for the very people that were killing him. That's who he was dying for. Which doesn't just mean the people that killed him in that day and age. It means you and me too. That Jesus would die for everyone that was killing him. That, that's not just no thought of return of something good. That was that, that there's a reasonable expectation of something bad coming back. Now John gets a hold of what agape is and it totally changes his life. And he becomes a guy who spends the rest of his life pouring out his life. We've been looking at him in prison in Revelation. Hardship, pouring out his life with no thought of return against the very people that are persecuting him in hopes that he can bring them. Boy, how evil of him. You do realize that all over the world right now there are people that are pouring out their lives for other people and it's not about what they're getting in return. 
It's about that there's somebody in need and that it's become reasonable to do that. Now, part of the reason why it's reasonable to do that is because in the afterlife, we're with God and, you know, you want to all this kind of stuff. But can I just say something? I don't think any missionary made it because what they were going to do was suffer really hard so they could get a big mansion in heaven. I think the reason why they did what they did was is because they had been inspired to do so by Christ. And I do want to make something clear. This isn't happening in any other religion on the face of the earth. This is the normal activity of a Christian and it is not of others. It just isn't. I want us to I want us to think about something. Hospitals, you know where they come from, right? They come from missionaries. And then they started, you know, and then they started building hospitals to take care of the poor. You do realize that public schooling, you know, at this point in time, we all believe in public schooling. It's a good thing, right? Actually, it's actually kind of become a bad thing because the world's got so hold of it that it's become something negative. But you do realize that we're public schooling. The idea of educating people so that they could read, that comes from Sunday school. That's where it comes from. And then there was the benefit of people being able to read that were illiterate and held down because of their illiteracy. And so it was a good thing that people learned how to read. Chris Rohr, thank you for this one. BBC, public broadcasting. Did you know this? That in the rotunda of the BBC, in the limestone, in the building, is this is for the proclamation of the gospel. Right? Is that, did I say it right, Chris? Okay. Okay. Broadcasting which again I think has become kind of evil as the world's gotten a hold of it, <laughs> right? But the bottom line is, is that what they were doing with broadcasting was to spread the good news, to, to, to inform people, to tell them what was going on. It was a news organization that was not just, it wasn't just a preacher channel. It was the idea that we need to inform people. We need to build them up. We need to grow them. We need to tell them what's going on in the rest of the world. We need to spread this. You can't hardly go to anything that is good in our public realm that didn't begin with Christ. In fact, it's so strong. See, this, all of these things are kindness and goodness and gentleness. We're kind of catching a bunch of them at once. But this is the, I've referred to this before, but watch this. This is the Guardian. The Guardian is a very left-leaning liberal socialist. I mean, we say that word here and we don't know what it really means. Uh, but, you know, I mean, this is truly a socialist magazine, okay? And this is what they do. And this guy who's writing this particular article right here is Ray Hattersley. And, and he is the, the deputy leader of the Labor Party, which is in power. So this is the second most important person in all the political realm of England, and he's a socialist, that's the Labor Party, he's a socialist in the Labor Party, and he is writing in The Guardian this left-leaning thing, and what has happened is Katrina has happened two years before this, and he just went back down to Katrina, and look at what he says here. We, faith does breed charity. We atheists have to accept that most believers are better human beings. <laughs> that doesn't make us superior. He just means they're doing what they mean to do. Watch this down here. The Salvation Army has been given a special status as a provider-in-chief of American disaster relief, but its work is being augmented by all sorts of other groups. Almost all of them have a religious origin and character. And then he says this. Listen to this. Notable by their absence 
are teams from rationalist societies, free thinkers clubs, and atheist associations. The sort of people who not only scoff at religion's intellectual absurdity, but also regard it as a positive force for evil. <laughs> He's saying you can think all you want to think, but the proof's in the pudding. And the Christians are down there making pudding. There's a very ironic thing on this page, by the way, that I just have to point out because it's fun. Do note, the November 23rd, you know, this is a website link, The Guardian, right? And so down here, look at this little article down here. Religious, religions do not have a monopoly on virtue, virtue, the queen tells the synod. So the queen, who's supposed to be the Church of England, titular head at this point in time, but still nonetheless, supposed to be the religious figure, goes into the Christianity that she's supposed to be the head of and says, you do not have a truth on morality. John Woodbury, you here? John Woodbury has this one of, John Woodbury, I've, I've come to absolutely adore you. I, I mean, just, I'm crazy about you. And he has this funny little saying, which is, he says, facts, oh, I'm forgetting it now, facts are stubborn things. John Adams is a source, but, but, he just, but you're the one that says it, okay? A lot of people said stuff, you're the one, he means it, right? But look at this, facts are stubborn things. This guy went and looked at some facts, and he said, we may think of ourselves as being noble, but the truth is we can't find it in practice. We're not finding it in practice. I'm not saying it never happens. I'm just saying it is happening by religious people. And it's not just religious people. It's happening by Christians. That's the truth. That's a fact, and it's a stubborn thing. Here's a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30, and then for three years he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never owned a home. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He had nothing to do with this world except the naked power of his divine manhood. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth while he was dying, and that was his coat. When he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend, and such was his human life. But then he rises from the dead... And 19 wide centuries have come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece of the human race, the leader of the column of progress. I am within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, and all the navies that were ever built, and all the parliaments that ever sa sat or sailed, and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. We're going to jump because, I, again, I could spend so much time on each one of these, and I had all this, but I just don't get to say it all because I, I want to get out of here in less than three hours. Joy. Can I tell you, again, my personal testimony, being rich, they say you can't buy happiness. I would disagree with that, except in the extreme example. I'm not kidding you. I had a lot of money, and I could do anything I wanted to do, and I never worked for anybody until I was late into my 30s, and I traveled anywhere I wanted to travel, and I bought anything that I wanted to buy, and I did anything that I wanted to do, and may I say, it was fun. I had a lot of fun. 
It was joyful even. Julie and I had a very joyful life. Anybody that knew us said, those are two of the happiest people you'll ever meet. And by the way, we were very generous with it. We were taking people along and doing things for them and helping them out too, so we made a lot of other people happy too. But then I became poor. And I came to understand what Jesus was talking about when, when through the writer of Hebrews, he says, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. I came to know a joy that had to do with God that made every joy that I'd ever had in the world not only seem not good anymore. And really, truly, I never saw it as not good. It seemed good to me. But suddenly I saw it as not good. And not in some sort of like beat yourself up way. It's just that I came to find something better. And it wasn't just better in degree. It was different in kind. It was magnificent, glorious. What's the joy that Jesus had before him? What was it again? What's it say right there? Getting to sit with God. I'm going to tell you a story right now. This sermon, I have never had anything like this ever happen to me before. Not even close. For the last two and a half to three weeks, I have been under attack from every dimension that you could imagine. That's not true. My health hasn't gone yet, so God, it would be nice if that didn't go too. But I have been under attack that has been phenomenal. I mean, just, I, seriously, I'm telling you the truth. I have never experienced this kind of attack, and I've experienced a lot of big attacks in my life. Now, I want to say something. People who have spent time with me recently would say, really, you were under attack? God, you were, you know, Friday night, you were laughing and having a great time, and I was. I do understand something about when I'm under attack. Here's what I know. I know that he who is, who is for me is greater than he who is against me. That he who is within me is greater than he who is in the world. I know that he works all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I know that what Satan meant for evil, God means for good. These are things that I say to myself all the time, and I don't do it as some mantra to convince myself. I'm just telling you, whenever Satan is attacking me, I just know that God's in control. Because these are truths in my life. These are foundational aspects that I stand on, and I don't slip on them for some reason. I don't know why, but I just don't. I know that God has got it. And so I'm able to have all kinds of fun, even in the midst of all kinds of attack. It did come to a head Thursday night, Sabbath. Very unfortunately with two people that I love as much as I love anybody, and it was just one of them, and that was Stephen. And, and I, had, I had the most despicable moment that I've had, I cannot remember. I don't know if I've had one worse, but I just lost it. 
there was a problem with the scheduling today and so on, and I was having a little trouble working through it and finding the Lord and all these other things, and I was confused and everything else. And like I say, that was only one thing that was going on. There were several other things that were going on. And, and we just had this, this moment where there was a misreading of what I was trying to say, and, and I believe, and, and, and the bottom line is, is that we had this conversation. I just railed on the poor guy for 45 minutes, and I was trying not to. I was saying really nice things about how much I loved him and respected him and how excited I was, but the whole time I was just losing it. I was just out of control. And I just apologize to you with everything I've got, Stephen. I hate it. I'm just so sorry. I wish that had never happened. God is good. Let me just tell you, though, because that was just one of the things that was going on. And they got so large that I wasn't able to write my sermon on Friday, which would be the normal day I would do it when I'm not having a Sabbath on, anyway, whatever. I, just, I wasn't able to write it before the weekend. And then yesterday, all day long, I, could, I actually had a few moments. I had a men's meeting that I did, and I had a wedding that I did, but I had some moments before the wedding and then after, and, and I just couldn't find God's anointing. I couldn't find his presence. And I did not want to write a sermon to you that came from me. Because I've never done that before, at least to my knowledge. And I pray that I will never, ever do it. And I'll tell you what I did. Is at 7 o'clock last night, I said, i got to write a sermon. I literally did not. I knew roughly what it was about, but I didn't have it in a way I could preach it at all. And so I went to bed at 7 o'clock, and I said, God, wake me up when it's time. Wake me up when you're ready to tell me what to say, and I can write it down. And until then, I'm just going to go to sleep because I need to get some sleep. And he woke me up at 1 o'clock. And for the first time in my life, before I preached, I've been up since 1 o'clock. I got five hours. I'm doing good. I feel good. I hope the sermon's coming out good. I don't know. Maybe it's just really <laughs> crappy. Okay? But the truth is that's the nature of the attack that is coming against me right now. And it's just huge. And it's just ripping me apart. Except that it's not at all. For the joy set before me to be in his presence. Can I just tell you something? I could have sat down and in my own strength, I could have tried to bang out a sermon. It would have taken me probably eight hours and it would have been the most labored, torturous experience you could possibly imagine. And the sermon would suck. But instead, at 1 o'clock last night, God woke me up. And I've got to rest in his presence and his anointing since 1 o'clock last night. And I'm not crying because I'm tired, because I don't feel tired. And maybe, but, you know, I'm old now. And you start crying when you get old. I don't know what that's about. <laughs> okay? You just cry all the time, right? Is that my right, John? Come on. You know, he got to a certain age, and the water faucet <laughs> Sorry to pick on you. I cry at everything now. I cried at the singing. But the, for the joy that was set before me, I got to be in God's presence last night from 1 o'clock till now. Even if the sermon stunk, let me tell you, I'd go do that again every week if that's what it meant. If that's what it was going to take to be in His presence. For the joy set before me, I would endure that. Because it's worth it. Now notice something. I'm not talking about worth it in heaven. That too. That even more so, really, truthfully. 
But can I say, just to keep it to what we're doing today, right here, right now, today, for the joy set before me, there are hardships and difficulties which I endure every single day happily. There's never a time that I don't complain about something that I don't immediately follow it up by saying consciously, and not to get God's favor, but because it's in my heart to say so, I say, God, thank you that I get to do this. Thank you that you let me do this. Because this is the best thing that I could ever imagine. And if he ever calls me out of here, it'll be to something better. Yet. Now that's good. And may I say, I hope this sermon is going to touch a few lives. People that are in trouble, that are in difficulties. That are in places of hopelessness. That are in places of despair. That are in places of doubt. That are in places of difficulty that is starting to rob you of joy. And I hope at this moment in time that you will hear something that will bring you back to a place of hope. Bring you back to a place of presence. Bring you back to a place of God. Coming to know Him more deeply, more real, more fully, more gloriously. And what an evil thing that I should do that. How dangerous. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thank you, God. really dangerous. Here's what Albert Einstein had to say. As a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and the Talmud. I'm a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Wow, huh? Doskoevsky says it this way, even those who have renounced Christianity and attack it in their innermost being still follow the Christian ideal. It's just the best one out there. For hitherto, neither their subtlety nor their ardor of their hearts has been able to create a higher ideal of man and of virtue than the ideal given by Christ of old. Is that a little too frou-frou for you? Is that a little too esoteric? Let me get really practical with you. Because here's what Newsweek has to say about Jesus. Because Christianity's influence is so pervasive throughout much of the world, it is easy to forget how radical its beliefs once were. Jesus' resurrection forever changed Christians' view of death. Rodney Stark, sociologist at the University of Washington, across the water, points out that when a major plague hit the ancient Roman Empire, Christians had surprisingly high survival rates. Why? Most Christian citizens would banish any plague-ridden person from their household. But because Christians had no fear of death, they nursed their sick instead of throwing them out on the streets. Therefore, many Christians survived the plague. This is not supposition. This is not myth. This is not argument. This is fact. And they happen to be stubborn things. And this is good. So let me just take you to the last one, love. The world gets love. 
people that don't know Christ fall in love and get married and have oftentimes very wonderful marriages. It happens. Parents and children can love one another. Period. It happens. God made us in his image and we are capable of love. We were made to be one with one another and when we do that we feel something and it is wonderful. It really is wonderful. But like we've been talking about with all these things, to get to what Jesus is really talking about, you have to go to what he's really talking about. And when he's talking about the fullness of the Holy Spirit having to do with love, he's not talking about the love that we all experience in the world. He's talking about the love of God. He's talking about a love that surpasses the best moments in a marriage by a millionfold. The best moments between a parent and a child. He's talking about a love. You've had these, right? Most of you, this is why you're sitting here today. Not because of the preaching, not because of other things, not because of Stephen's excellent worship, not because of all that. You're here because you've had an experience of having the creator of heaven and earth, all the universe, narrow his focus right down on you and then never stop. You've had the experience of that same God living inside of you, leading, guiding, helping, comforting, nurturing, lifting up, correcting. This love, this love I can love other people because God loved me like this. I've come to know a love that surpasses anything having to do with philos, having anything to do with eros, and frankly, having anything to do with agape. Think about it for a second. The love that I'm talking about is so wonderful that it locates you in the universe. You know, we're not talking about an Easter religion where, where the individual will subjugate themselves to the whole and for the good of the whole. We're talking about a religion where this ironic, this paradoxical thing happens, where God comes to you and says, you are the apple of my eye, and I am crazy about you, and every single thing about you I am just in love with, and he's just pouring his grace, he's pouring his love, he's pouring his mercy, he's pouring everything out into you, and it's just this overwhelming thing to the point that you can't do anything but share it with somebody else. It's not about agape or philos or arrows. It's just filled up and overflowing. It locates you. It gives you purpose and meaning. It gives you value as the individual to make a difference for everybody. You are given a calling. And when you walk in it, you're in peace. You're fulfilled. The thing that he prepared you to do. And here's what's funny about it. How many people have you ever heard that said, oh, I never wanted to do the ministry that I now do and absolutely love? <laughs> God just comes in and loves us and locates us so beautifully, so wonderful, so fully, so magnificently that we cannot help but just become rivers of living water. And that is good. I'm going to end right now, but I want to point out something to you and make it clear. You do realize we've not talked about salvation. Kind of a good thing in the world. I mean, there's a lot of effects that we could argue come out. We've not talked about forgiveness. 
We've not talked about how the Hutus and the Tutsis in Africa are, in fact, what they're doing is the Hutus were slaughtering the Tutsis. And now what is happening is they slaughtered the family, and now the Hutu is a member of the Tutsi family serving in the capacity of the people that were slaughtered. And they're not doing it as slaves. They're doing it as beloved members of a tight-knit family. This is forgiveness that goes way beyond. You remember the videos I was showing on martyrdom, on the martyr day? You remember the one that had to do with South Africa where the guy was shot in the face by somebody, a rebel? And at the very end of the reenactment that they did, I'll never forget that moment. On the reenactment, what happens is the, the guy who shot the guy in the face, who just happened to live, and he's got the scars to prove it. His face was shot. It looks like it. And the guy who shot him is sitting there weeping that he did this to who is now his friend and mentor. And at one moment, as the guy is weeping, the guy who got shot in the face reaches out and puts his hand on his, the other guy's shoulder to say, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. God, how many people would be set free if they could learn forgiveness like that? No matter what it was, right? Boy, what an evil thing Christianity is. Jesus of Nazareth without money and arms conquered more millions than Alexander the Great, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on the things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the elegance of school, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since and produced effects which lie beyond. I love this line. And produce effects which lie beyond the reach of the orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion, furnished more themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, songs of praise, than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. Jesus Christ is to me the outstanding personality of all time, all history, both the Son of God and Son of Man. Everything he ever said or did has value for us today, and that is something you can say of no other man, dead or alive. Let me repeat that. Every, everything he ever said or did has value for us today. As we've looked at Einstein and Gandhi and, and all these other people, even the, the guy in The Guardian, all these guys have said exactly that, haven't they? And that is something you can say of no other man, dead or alive, there is no easy middle ground to stroll upon. You either accept Jesus or reject him. We understand that the new atheists have chosen to reject him because they find him to be dangerous. But if you'll accept him, you'll get to have that moment, that Christmas moment. Where the angel says to us, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, 
I am asking you that on this Christmas sermon Sunday, that you would overflow us with glory to God in the highest, with the peace on earth and goodwill that you have. Oh God, in Jesus' holy and precious name, this entire congregation comes before the King of kings and the Lord of lords gloriously, magnificently. And we say unto you, thank you, praise you. Help me to hear, help me to follow, help me to enter into the life that you have for me. Thank you, God.